So it's not just how wide, how, how big can the thigh angle get? It's how fast can you accelerate that thigh to close? So it's, it's creating that switch pattern, uh, and which was a, a variable that we started tracking a ton. Um, and then from there, it was like, how much of that is front side versus backside? So originally growing up, we we're like, oh, you need 90 degrees in the front, uh, no backside, but that, that's unrealistic. Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas, and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is all about sprint profiling, and this roundtable was actually recorded this time last year with JB Marin, Ryan Grubbs, and Les Spellman. So we attacked it right from the start, why is it essential to profile our athletes, then we'll move into the various ways we can profile our athletes. Then we have a little chat about the intricacies of actually doing it. So profiling large groups and then profiling acceleration versus max speed. So this, if you're interested in getting to know more about where your athletes need to focus their time in terms of training to improve speed, this episode is definitely for you. And I could not cho- could not have chosen three better people to dive into this particular area. So it's a fantastic hour. I hope you enjoy it and look forward to any feedback. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hytro. Have you ever tried blood flow restriction training? So for pro sport teams and athletes, Hytro is the only performance BFR brand to create pressure validated BFR wearables that are practical, safe and scalable, allowing you to enhance recovery and maximise athletic potential like never before. Widely used by top flight rugby, football, cricket and motorsports teams already in post-game changing rooms, away game travel, hotels or at home. Hytro has proven that creating their simple and effective wearables allows BFR to be delivered to athletes and squads simultaneously and safely. To find out how Hytro BFR can give your athletes a competitive edge, visit hytro.com or email the team at teamsales at hytro.com. And this episode is also sponsored by Hawking Dynamics. Hawking Dynamics is the world's first wireless force plate testing system. The Hawking Dynamics system is built for coaches to test in the real world, not just in the lab. Capture reliable data on all your athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor their progress in the cloud from anywhere in the world. The Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, portable and trusted by teams at every level of sport. Integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring program has never been easier or more affordable. If you want to see the Hawking Dynamics force plate system in action, head over to their website hawkingdynamics.com to schedule a demo or follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. This episode is also sponsored by Team Builder. Team Builder is a software for performance coaches around the world. The powerhouse platform increases efficiency, saves paper, and can handle any type of programming. It's the perfect fit for professional and academy teams, performance institutes, schools, and universities. Team Builder is full of tools that help coaches' needs. Multiple max tracking methods, 16 plus reports, evaluation testing, and goal setting, just to name a few. Coaches also have access to consultations with Team Builder's in-house sports scientist to help manage and analyze data. Head to teambuilder.com and sign up with promo code SPORTSMITH to start your 30-day free trial. 
So without further ado, over to the episode with JB, Ryan, and Les. But we don't need any intros because you all know who these these guys are. So we'll come to Ryan first. Ryan's going to kick us off. Why do we need, very broad question, but it will set us up nicely for the next hour. Why do we need to profile our athletes? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a pretty important question because we have this whole idea around collective individualization. So it's this idea that you've got a large group of athletes depending on how big your team is. They're all of varying degrees of physical abilities and experiences, and they all need certain things that kind of move the needle forward with them. So if we have the idea that general programs yield general results, then we need a way to like bucket and mailbox athletes in certain categories to where we can yield programs that are going to move the needle forward for those guys. So in order to make best use of our training time, we need to have the ability to see what the, for lack of a better term, the low hanging fruit is or where their limiting factors are and their weak links are in regards to their sprint performance. And so if you think of the entire annual plan, at least in, you know, collegiate athletics or collegiate football is like these mini blocks of time where you have access to these athletes to make actionable changes. We want to make the best use of that entire training block by being able to profile them, find their weaknesses and attack those weaknesses as best we can. And so the whole idea of, of the general training plan and vertical integration is still in play. We keep everything in the program at all times, kind of raise everything up and train everything but we're really attacking those individual uh, weak links and abilities. Just to play devil's advocate slightly before we dive into the, um, into the questions, as you get more experience and you, that, that coaching eye develops, is there a, a way that you can potentially, without going through that process, book it athletes so you can have specialized programs, not the general programs that you mentioned, but have specialized programs that are specialized for three or four people based on a bucket and then another, another three or four people based on a bucket versus going, striving for that like individual program. Yeah. I mean, the whole idea is to say, if you have a hundred athletes, a hundred individual programs is logistically impossible. So it's the whole idea of like, what do your logistics present to you in your environment? That's really going to dictate how many programs that you have running simultaneously. So, I mean, just take, college football environment, for example, usually have a number of coaches. Each coach is potentially responsible for a position group. And some of those position groups may be doing different things inside the training session or different portions of the year. So instead of saying, we're going to program for that certain position group, we're going to program based on weakness. So it's just shifting the mindset and the training mentality around to say that uh, our program is going to be running in tandem. You may have the ability to run two programs. You may have the ability to run four but how deep you go and how deep you profile is going to be based on your logistics, how many coaches you have, um, things like that. Cool. JB? Yeah, Ryan, I, I wanted to add to, to Rob's question. You personally, uh, how do you respond to people who say, basically, don't bother uh, doing this, this individualization, just go for a, for a maximum power output program and, and you'll be fine? I mean, I think it's been proven if you, you measure what matters in your program. So if you actually start to measure the things that matter, you see that different athletes are going to respond to different types of training and different types of uh, stimulus are going to yield different adaptations in those athletes. So if you just apply a general program, like we said, it just apply, it yields general results. Some athletes are going to respond, some aren't. 
But in order to make best use of your training time, like be very targeted and specific about what these athletes are receiving. And so, um, yeah, for us, like we want to be very specific about what we measure. We want to be very specific about the, the stimulus that we're applying to these athletes um, to make it as best as possible. Excellent. Les, just coming to you. I know I'm going to ask you the same thing as Ryan, but what's your reason for profiling? Just exactly echoing what Ryan said, or is there anything in yeah. particular that resonated so you can dive a little bit deeper? Yeah, I think um, a lot of like my coaching philosophy comes from my anxiety about getting to the end and like making sure that I get the result that I need to get. So what I found, like once I started reading JB's research and, and all that, it was an easy way for me to knock off some of the, the basic physical qualities I had to, had to get athletes into. Um, and then I could shape it up with technical ad adaptations and things like, uh, you know, really making it like an art form. But for me, it was being able to actually take it and program and then know from a physical standpoint, this athlete is developing a quality they need to develop. And as you know, in sprinting, like the goal isn't to just run at max power all the time. The goal is to run fast. So applying a stimulus where and when and how long has a lot to do with where the athlete fits in their bucket. So for an example, an athlete that, that needs to accelerate from early and, and doesn't have that physical capability to orient themselves horizontally, they might end up spending more time in that power bucket where they're, they're working um, max power for a period of time that's a little bit longer than an athlete that has that capability and needs to touch on some of the speed strength qualities or the high speed qualities. So for me, it was an easy way to have an objective opinion um, on something and then be able to tell the athlete like, hey, this is, this is why and this is where we're going. Because I'm dealing with like 21 to 22 year old guys that are about to be millionaires and they have eight weeks and their, their goal is really to maximize their speed for one to two runs. And I have to be able to look at it and, and know going into that period, into that competition period that I applied the right stimulus. Um, and Ryan was super helpful with us this year and JB's research was super helpful as well. Um, but we were able to look at it and say across 34 guys, uh, we're gonna bucket these guys. And there was like a lot of similarities. Like there was, we ended up having uh, four different buckets and it was, it was relatively easy to run in a session uh, because the only thing that we actually individualized was the load uh, that they're running with and sometimes the volume. Um, but it was able to, we were able to look at it and, and really take a step back from overcoaching the technical side of it. And we're seeing adaptations happen on the technical side just by applying the right stimulus that the athlete needed. So um, a little bit of a long-winded answer, but yeah. No, it's all good. All good. Dive in, Ryan. Yeah, I mean, I think just kind of like expand on what he was talking about. If you essentially look at your entire training plan, so essentially the slope that you take to get there is going to change based on your strengths and weaknesses. So it's like, why stick to these predetermined timelines of, you know, max force, max power, max velocity when you're moving away from the stimulus when they're still improving inside of it? So it's like if, if an athlete needs to apply – heavier loads of body weight they need to work on acceleration like why move away from those exercises too soon when there's still a lot of stimulus to be able to be applied to those athletes so traditionally it's like if you look at an eight-week cycle you know at, you're still going to respect the training plan the training pipeline of good training it's like we're going to start with our acceleration work we're going to work short to long and we're going to get to the end goal at the same place it's what slope you're taking to get there and how quickly you're moving like less said in and out of these different um categories so cool thank you guys
Right, moving on to the next question, bringing JB firmly into the conversation here. So what options do we actually have to profile our athletes, JB? So uh, th th there's two different profiles we need to consider. One is for uh, assessment. We will call it the force velocity profile. The other one is for uh, training programming and, and load programming, and it's the load velocity profile. And if you if you do some mistakes in the load velocity profile, then you, you will not uh, get to the target. So I'm going to start with this one. What you need is a speed device. You need to know the speed at which the maximum speed the, the athletes reach because load is very easy to, to, to quantify, of course. And the other one is, uh, so you can use uh, uh, radar systems, you can use um, uh, timing gate systems. If you set some timing gates to have very short splits around maximum speed, so you can set some two or five meter timing gates around the 20, 25, 30 meter zone or 40 if, the, if people are faster. And you can get the, the average speed because it's a plateau at that time. And you can get speed devices that range from, from pretty inexpensive uh, app like MySprint to pretty expensive stuff. Uh, so that, that basically depends on, on, your, uh, on your budget there. Uh, then you can also assess the friction between the, the sled if you're using the sled and the track because it will help you. That's very easy to do. You just need to buy a couple of dollars for sensor. You can find it online or it's very accurate and you just pull the sled at a constant speed and you watch the, the, the force that is needed and you can calculate the friction. So that's for, for the load velocity. For the force velocity profiling, you just um, use the method that we've popularized, but that was existing. It's almost one century uh, that the first observations of this exponential increase in speed were made by, by people in England so and in the US. So you just need to know exactly position over time or velocity, running velocity or running speed over time. And so same, same story repeating. You can have very simple, basic, inexpensive systems to very expensive systems. The only thing you need to check beforehand is that they are accurate because if you don't have accurate system, accurate timing, accurate starting, for example, if you have split time, but your first, uh, your trigger for the timing system is half a meter ahead of the sprinters, you will overestimate things. So inaccurate systems will give you inaccurate uh, outputs, but uh, you have at least today, I would say five or six different systems that have been validated. And maybe the most promising one is GPS systems uh, or indoor systems like uh, Kinexon and so on, but this is super elite right now. But GPS systems now tend to be more um, accessible, popular slash accurate, at least for top speed. Um, so that, that, that's the way to go. And so you need to, to follow uh, the research and, and people using it and publishing it because that, that's, that, that's the information. People will tell you if it's accurate or not. And so, for example, to, to finish my point here, um, today I use Confidently, my sprint app, timing gates, if the timing gates start with the actual movement start, which is almost never the case, or radar, laser, 1080, DynaSpeed, you know, uh, motorized uh, linear encoder systems and GPS systems. I now provide, when I work with, a, with an athlete now, I just take my GPS systems. If the weather is nice and the GPS, you know, reception is accurate. Otherwise, I work with the radar. Just on the friction assessment, just, just, yeah. to, just go a little bit. Yeah, just, just explain that a bit more if you yeah, want. Sorry. 
It's all right. That's, okay. that's very. That's no. That's very super simple math. You just put a, a, a mass on the sled, and you know the mass of the sled. Let's say you have forty kilos. Okay, um, you pull that sled at a constant slow speed, and you just watch the the display of your of your um, uh, weight system. I have one that's twenty dollar online. It's very accurate, up to three hundred kilos, more than I can pull. And the ratio between the mass that you put on the ground, that's the force that's normal to the ground, even in kilograms, and the force that you see horizontally is your friction coefficient. So if you put 40 and you read 20, you have a 0.5 friction coefficient with that sled on that track. And this is very, very uh, useful because then it helps you calculate the horizontal force outputs and better know because everybody knows that the same 40 kilo of mass on a different sled and on a different surface will give you a very different you know horizontal pulling force and so a very different stimulus so 40 kilo is not the same if it's a wet turf and if it's a super dry uh, you know track in arizona so but it's 40 kilo anyways but it's not going to be the same stimulus for the athlete and this is part of programming we have these questions at the gym for velocity based train for for the bars we we need to also have these questions on the field for sprinting so just to dive a little bit deeper would you do that kind of assessment every single time like you said weather ch weather changes even if it's the same turf or track different weather means different no 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 okay okay uh, Maybe you need to have two extreme values, like okay. uh, a very, you know, very high friction, very low friction. But if you work in, 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 in conditions that are the same, you just do it once and then you know it's roughly, you know, typically on my track with my sled, my coefficient is 0 0.35. And I use that uh, uh, to, to better, you know, calculate things. But you, you don't need it if you use always the same systems and the same conditions. I'm going to get Les in here in a minute, but I just want to go into the GPS side of things, JB. People may have read of re may have read research five, six, seven years ago on GPS and may be a little bit um, unsure of how it can be used in this kind of situation. What's changed over this time when it comes to GPS systems? So first, uh, I wrote one of these studies myself. And um, so that was five years ago and, and technology is moving super fast. And even in, in the study we've published, we realized that on the day of testing, we were uh, the measurements were done with the surrounding structures that were metal structures or a stadium stands and so on. And the quality of the signal was not was not high. And we need to realize that these studies uh, include different brands, different systems, different technologies. And it's not because it's GPS that it's accurate. Not all GPS are equal. And the most important thing is that if you have a GPS system, but you cannot have access to the three or four main accuracy metrics, first, this is not normal because you know the manufacturer should give you access to that. And second, you should by definition doubt the quality if you don't have the metrics. So, and to me, these studies um, um, maybe had this issue. And for the last studies we did that we're going to publish very soon, we, we work with a very specific type of system. That's the GPXA ones. And the accuracy metrics are super high. And the comparison with the 1080, the radar, uh, the timing gates are very, very uh, high accuracy in terms of 
inter-sprint reliability, it has the same reliability as the other systems. So that's where well, we are today. Last question before I get Les in. What, what are those four data quality metrics that people should be, like, if it doesn't have this, I'm asking so, questions. Yeah. Yeah, 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 there's a there's a great paper on that. I can you can you can add that to the notes. I will send it to you. But basically, uh, first, that's the number of satellites, the number, the raw number of satellites that are connected to your unit. If it's if it's ten, it's different than if it's four or five. You see what I mean? The second is a very technical term called HDOP. That is the horizontal dilution of precision because the signal is basically coming from up down to your you know between the shoulders units but what we are assessing is a horizontally oriented movement so there's a um, a loss of accuracy there so these metrics allow you to know that then you can calculate what we call the signal to noise ratio that's the the, the very classical uh, uh what's the noise around my my measurement and what's the signal i'm trying to find and everything goes down to uh for gp exe systems the, the computation of the speed accuracy. And the speed accuracy is very important because it tells you how accurate is your measurement. Is it one meter per second accurate or is it 0 0.1 meter second accurate? And this is totally different because if you measure someone that is running at 10 meters per second, a one meter per second accuracy is a 10% error. And sometimes Les knows that and Ryan knows that between two athletes, if it's nine or if it's 10, it's a different word. And so you need to know that. And unfortunately, um, when you try to uh, have that from the manufacturer for the day you measure, uh, you cannot have access to this information. And this is, this is an issue because by default, it might be super good, but it might also be super, super low. So, and, and this influences the results for sure. Les. Finally getting, you in, finally getting you in after peppering JB with some questions. How do you use GPS with your athletes? Yeah, I, I've been uh, taking notes over here. My <laughs> <laughs> well, notepad is filled. Um, was that a question for Les? Sorry, it yeah. was. Yeah, it's for Les. Sorry, JB. Yes. JB, I've just been taking notes on you. Um, well, so starting out, like, like just when I first started profiling, I, everything was my sprint. I was working out the back of my car. And I would literally do every single athlete, you know, do the, the parallax and all that. Like it, it was a grind, but it was really accurate and it was really good. Uh, but then what happened is I needed to find a way to scale because I, I needed more time because um, I was having athletes come in every hour. I didn't have as much time. Um, so then what we looked at was doing GPS and there's like a good, better, best situation on profiling um, and really, really, really good is my sprint. But if you didn't have time, it was like, okay, well, GPS, like if we could figure out a way to have everybody just line up, run 30 or 40 meters and be able to get the profiles from there, um, then it would, it would simplify things for me because I'm not really great on the computer. I'm not really great at technology. Like I wanted to find simplest ways where athletes didn't understand that they were doing a test, but they were still getting test results and still getting profiling bucketing from there. Um, and then the best situation that I found after GPS was uh, most, like most consistent for me was 1080 or those types of devices or radar. But with GPS, it was like, we're always on the go. We had, uh, this year we had 34 athletes across three facilities. And it was really, really, really hard to find ways to, to get consistent profiling. And for us, GPS was like an easy way to knock that, knock that out the box. Um, and then from there, obviously, like you have your, your load and your volume and your intensity. Uh, you're actually tracking your sessions. So it was a good way for us to, to see like, 
you know, what is our plan volume versus what, what actually happened and intensities that, that happened with. Um, and then we just recently got into acceleration speed profiling, um, which I let JB kind of go into the research on, but it was an easy way for us to look at our changes and what, what we had planned. So like everybody was, was planned on going towards velocity. Did our sessions actually reflect uh, a higher velocity component within those sessions? And did we actually achieve the goal? Um, so it was like really, it's been really cool to work with GPS. And, and the, the best part about GPS is that it's getting better. Um, it's getting a lot better, actually, just like over the past couple of months, just seeing where people are headed with it. It's going to be a really easy solution. A lot of companies are actually going to build a lot of this into their into their software. So making it simpler, obviously, is, is the goal so that you don't have to be like a, a PhD to understand it. And you can still bucket athletes and still get the results because that's really what we're looking for is we're looking to actually get the result and get the athlete running faster. And you know, the less noise you have in that process, the better um, and, and simpler is the best. So. so currently, are you still having to do any work on the back end or is the GPS system that you use do the work for you? Yeah, well, not anymore. Um, okay. So honestly, what happened is my, my girl got pregnant. It's having my daughter. I had no time. So it <laughs> started YouTube, YouTubing, like how to code and, and uh, got a little bit on R, got a little bit just in the mix with that stuff. And then found some good people to help us build out a platform where we could just drop files in and it just runs the profiles for us. Um, so we have it through GPS. Uh, we also have it through 1080, uh, which is a great solution. And then I still do my sprint. Like I still use my sprint all the time, um, especially if somebody like sends me video and, and they have it set up right. Um, but yeah. Kyle also be delighted. Absolutely delighted here. Ryan, is, is GPS something that you use? Yeah, we have we have access to GPS and things like that, and it's a it's a very important piece to us. Uh, going outside of sprint profiling, which is more into our overall like team load monitoring and things like that, because generally we have a, a very very good, tight, precise idea about the load we're applying to athletes in the off season. We're just generally planned out. We know the intensities, we know the speeds and the volumes and things like that. Um, as far as like testing and profiling, like I'm probably a little bit more old school, like 1080s, like it's, it's very good. Like, I love it. I know the data is good. It's accurate. It's reliable. And then we go inside, outside. So depending on the weather of the session, like Virginia's weather is all up in the air, winter, things like that. Like we want our data and our, the data that we produce to be consistent across any season, whether it's indoor or outdoor. And uh, currently, we don't have the indoor capability to be able to get GPS inside. And so for us, it's, it's not really um, good across the entire annual plan to be able to have some of our data come from GPS and some of our data come from 1080 or split time, things like that. So uh, we know we can reproduce and, and recreate the data, whether we're inside or outside with 1080. So that's kind of where we go with it. One thing I want to be shop people know here is when we say gps it doesn't have to be a 50 grand stat sports catapult whatever uh system these companies are doing consumer devices but can these and i'm guessing the answer i don't know the answer is what are these companies putting these kind of these kind of um um data processing within their systems so you can get the type of information that we're talking about here in the consumer devices les jb um, I, I would say like without like 
bashing anybody. Like I, I think all the consumer devices are close. Okay. What 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 happens is that they they actually capture the data at 10 hertz typically. And and what happens is they have to downsize it to one hertz to transfer it to Bluetooth to the phone. Um, so I, and and that's not their fault. It's just a technology problem. But now with LTE, uh, I think companies are are going to be able to get that um, with the consumer devices to get like a high frequency to transfer across just directly to the cloud versus Bluetooth to the phone. Um, and JB, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but we've we've done some some tests on that, and we're we've been working towards it. Um, I think it's close, though. I think it's really close. Yeah. yeah, I think it's close. My experience so far is that uh, the funny thing is that I'm teaching a lot and my students, uh, you know, bachelor, master's degree, they start buying their own GPS with this kind of uh, uh, and we start cross comparing them. And uh, what we did so far is that we observed that on some metrics like uh, total distance, you know, volume, uh, maximum speed, so plateaus, plateau speed, they are pretty close. But the problem is that on other metrics like maximum acceleration, when you need accuracy because speed is changing very fast, uh, they're not. Uh, well, for for what I've seen, and the biggest the biggest issue is that what Les said is that they give you the end product is discrete data, discrete value, one speed, one number of sprints, etc. But you don't have access to the precision accuracy data, and you don't have access to the raw data to do your own further processing. So I would say that. The core technology might be somewhere about as accurate, but the end, uh, let's say, user experience and, and, and access to data is definitely, uh, you know, uh, less quality. But for most users, that's not the objective. And I would say that uh, people really looking for elite performance and the, the, the last half seconds um, may want to rather use, you know, uh, more expensive systems but it helps, uh, you know, popularizing the approach. So you mentioned uh, GPXE. Is there any other systems that you guys have used and had positive experience experiences with? Yeah, um, we've worked with Stat Sports. The pro okay. units are great. Uh, McLeod is really good. Um, I would say, like, at the top, like Catapult, a lot of the ones at the, at the top are, are really quality. Connexon. Uh, as JB mentioned, now has a GPS, um, and uh, I believe they're working on some some new stuff too as well. But uh, I know Connexon was LPS, and over the past year, I've done GPS, and they've got a great system now. Um, who else, Ryan? Who else do we use? Yeah, I mean we we've we've used Catapult, we use Stat. Um, I know McLeod's good. Like they're all they've all been good and solid for us. Like currently, we use Stat. Um, and so, yeah, like we've used the GPS and we use it, we use it quite frequently. We kind of run some of our profiling stuff in tandem, just kind of like line up and kind of assess and do that kind of stuff. But we just like, we always know that we can come back to, um, kind of like our anchor measures that we do. Like, so for 1080, so for us, like I said, if we had access and we could, you know, we had everything set up to where we could get really, really tight, accurate data inside all the time. Like we would probably use GPS because it'd be so much easier. Um, yeah. So it just like, again, it always comes back to logistics environment and like what you can do. And like, there's really not an excuse anymore to like not be able to collect data and get really accurate, tight data. So it's just like, what do you find meaningful to you? Um, kind of what you have access to. And just to add on it, like one of the things I get asked a lot is like, 
it's like how often are we testing the profiles and and that's like one thing that like will kind of kind of makes sense like is, is what we're talking about and why we use 1080 to, to profile because we only test really in the beginning somewhere in the middle and then just like we use gps and we use all these other devices just to kind of check in make sure we're on track so we're trying to get as close as we can but we don't a, a test is a stressful environment so we have to be very careful about when we introduce a test and how far away is it from the actual event like it's it's a lot different if you're working with a team than like right now like what i do has a lot to do with off season getting guys ready for a single event so a, a test is, is a stressor and i just want to make sure that like i'm gradually putting stressors in there and trying to collect data in the session without having them think they're being tested. And that's where GPS has been a really good tool. Um, but like taking it with a grain of salt, like I want to have like a very consistent measure that I'm always going back to, which it's been 1080 for us. Like we could just set it up. We know it's going to be consistent along the way. Um, and I think GPS is headed in that direction. Um, so it's really cool. And then the other piece of it, which JB mentioned um, previously is like, once you have that test, the load velocity profile becomes, for me, the mo really the most important because that's the prescription and that's how we're going to change that so that when I have another test, I can almost predict what the outcome is going to be. Um, similar to how I would in the weight room, I have a measure and I have a way to say, I'm going to make this change by introducing this amount of stress uh, with this amount of intensity. And when it's all said and done, here's the outcome that I'm going to have. And we, we're almost predicting it with with pretty easy success. Um, Ryan's pretty humble, but I've seen him do it and he helped us get it, get it going. So it's uh, pretty cool. Ivan JB. Yeah, I, I just want to add to the to the GPS question. Basically, to me, the, the top four, top five uh, firms in the world might have the same about the same um, uh, reception quality. The very big difference is going to be the data processing, the access to the accuracy metrics we've discussed before, yes, no. If it's no to me, it's it's an issue. And the the dash the overall dashboard and the access to the raw data. It's it's very important that anybody has access to the raw data because otherwise you're you're influenced by the marketing slash choice made by the manufacturer and you cannot make your own choices in the data you so you want to have access to the raw data and here there might be some differences between between the brands and and i hope they they will update that in the future to to let's say to give more access I, I i work now with catapult and we are going to publish a comparison study the student the postdoc who is doing the 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 the, the analysis told me that years ago he was using catapult already in an elite rugby club and he told me at that time he had more uh you know extensive access to the raw data that that with the newest system so uh, I understand there's some some uh, um, uh, constraints, but that should be that should be a basic. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with these three guys. So over in part two, we have a little chat around acceleration profiling and how that differs to max speed profiling. And then we have a little chat about implementing this stuff with different populations and with large groups. So fantastic part two coming up. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Omega Wave. Omega Wave is the only non-invasive at rest technology on the market that analyzes readiness to train via both brain and cardiac analysis. 
Using DC potential and HRV to understand your brain's energy level and autonomic nervous system balance allows you to use objective data on recovery and readiness that in turn helps you to truly individualize your training and thus optimize performance. Omega Wave also measures ECG from the V6 position. This data can be used by the medical profession to check cardiac health on a frequent basis. The measurement takes only four minutes to perform and results are visualized in an intuitive way thanks to our Windows of Trainability concept. Omega Wave is used by hundreds of elite sports, military and law enforcement organizations. Omega Wave are also the official partner of the UFC Performance Institute. Learn more about Omega Wave by visiting their website, omegawave.com, and their social media channels. And this episode is also sponsored by Stanta College. Stanta College, led by Dr. Liam Hennessy, provides international recognized qualifications in strength and conditioning and performance science from certificate to master's level. Courses are designed by industry leaders such as Des Ryan and Professor Ian Jeffries, ensuring students and graduates are at the cutting edge of technology and learning the most current methodologies from world-renowned practitioners. Stanta College's unique blended learning approach allows you to take the next step in your career in your own time and at your own pace. Lectures are delivered in an online classroom, while residential workshops provide the perfect opportunity for practical application of your studies with guidance from experts within the field of sports science and performance coaching. With campus locations across Ireland, the UK, USA, India and South Africa, applications are now open for courses including the BSc in Strength and Conditioning, MSc in Performance Coaching, and MSc in Applied Sport and Exercise Physiology. Visit tantacollege.com for more information on how to apply. And now back to the episode with JB, Les and Ryan. Sticking with you, JB, and I'll dive into, um, ask, ask Les and, and Ryan to dive in if, if they've got anything to add here, but the acceleration profiling side of things, Les set you up nicely saying that you'd dive into the research for us. Yeah, so, so basically, as Les said, the test is a stress, and uh, we realized working with uh, football, European football soccer players that asking guys who sprint all day, all match long uh, to do a 30-meter sprint is, is something. So we wanted to analyze the data, the game and training data a bit deeper. And so we've published, and there's some, uh, some webinars on my website you can access. We've published a method where we collect all the acceleration and speed data. We plot them, so acceleration related to the running speed. We plot them together and the maximum value of acceleration at any given speed down the spectrum, you know, uh, is shows a linear tendency. And so this line, when extrapolated, is what we could call the game acceleration speed profile. And so we are right now working on comparing that to the classical linear sprint, because it's a win-win situation. If it's if the information is different, then you know you have two specific ways to assess the players. If the information is interchangeable, if it's the same information, basically that's, that's huge, because it means, as Les said, don't bother doing a linear test, uh, just collect one week of training or a game data. We, we, we figured out that 45 minutes of very intense uh, soccer uh, game was enough and you'll know the fv or the acceleration speed profile of your player so i'm very exciting to to push this result forward and then to apply it to other sports than football uh, to us football to uh, rugby and so on 
Perfect. Thanks, JB. Just a reminder to people, if you've got any questions, throw it in the chat, throw it in the, the Q&A. There's some French questions in there. I think that's probably best to leave to, leave, to, leave to you, JB, if that's all right. Yeah. Um, unless Les and Ryan are holding something from us and the, the fluent French speakers. Um, getting, getting Ryan back in here, just moving away from the, the on-field sprint profiling. Ryan, what non-field-based assessments do you use to aid your sprint uh, speed programs? Yeah, this is a is a pretty big question, I think, for sure. I think when we're looking at sprint profiling, like generally I like to look at the split times. Like I like to see how what they do across an entire sprint. So we're able to zone in on a specific area and segment relative to the position group, where they're weak or where they're strong. Now, where the force velocity profiling comes in is, is very, very important in like showing their strategy. So it's like, it's not what you did, it's how you got there. And so from that point, you can see, is it a mechanical effectiveness issue or is it a, a force producing issue or things like that? And then from there, we've got very specific profiling strategies on the periphery where it's almost like it goes, it's using almost um, akin to like a Bonderchuk type system. So like people have conflated load velocity profiling and force velocity profiling for many years. But how we look at load velocity profiling is a specific strength profile for our athletes. So we, that we know that if they have a force deficiency, we're going to look at the heavier loads relative to the percentage of body weight. So it's like, can you move heavy loads fast? Because if you can, then it's largely going to be a technical issue surrounding your ability to accelerate because you have the specific strength qualities to be able to accelerate fast. And we've seen that across some athletes. They have a low F0, a low built, low A max, yet they can move heavy loads faster relative to their position group. Well, it's like they have the specific strength qualities. And so there's this idea of floating that like heavy sleds or loaded sled work is all that's needed to like apply the stimulus to the problem and attack it, which is not the genesis of force velocity profiling at all. It's really only one piece. And so like, if we know that we have an athlete on the opposite of the spectrum that has a, a low V zero, they can accelerate well, but they just don't have a good top speed. We're going to look at the, the, the lows relative to a smaller percentage of body weight. So it's like, can you move really low loads fast relative to your position of body weight? So you're getting a specific strength profile and you can compare it relative to the average of the group. Like what's the slope of that, that profile. And then from there, you can dive into specific developmental exercises. So there's this bridge between what you do in the weight room in a general sense and what you do sprinting on the field. And if you can develop a few exercises in the weight room using technology and wearables, such as like wall drives with gym wear attached to you to get velocity or using output to get triangular velocities in certain drills. Like you can start to, you can, you have the ability to overload those drills and have like a specific developmental exercise battery developed around acceleration or maximal velocity. And then obviously like the more specific drills as well. So it's like, okay, if they have an acceleration issue, it's going to be your more concentric, powerful base exercises. You're, We'll use like split stance, broad jumps. We'll use triple jumps, triple broad jumps. Like those exercises, like their ability to perform those well is going to be indicative of their ability to be able to project and orient their body forward in space. And it's on the opposite end of the spectrum is, can you get measures around straight leg bounding for speed through timing gates or specific speed bounding drills? Like these are special exercises that 
their ability to do these well is going to have high degrees of transfer to the competition exercise. And then as we move further away, it's, you have things that we like to call specific joint profiling. And I took this a lot from like Alex and Tara and James Wild and, and their research and their work. But what is some of the specific joints that lead high degrees of success of sprint performance? So your ability to have large peak forces of hip extension and do it quickly is going to be a big marker of sprint success. And so we do the what's called a supine single leg hip extension test. And like their work has been key and pivotal in that area. And so your ability to basically recreate the position of the knee because the position of the knee is gonna cause large variances in the data. But it's basically an isometric test where they're pushing into an immovable object, a pad, a barbell, things like that. And you can set the, the degree of the angle of the leg to be rather straight to mimic more of like a straight leg max velocity position or a bent at about 90 degrees, so more of an acceleration-based position. And so you can get peak force and then forces at 100 and 200 milliseconds. So you can get like a broad spectrum of what the hip's capability is to do in an isolated environment. And then around the foot and the ankle is the other big area and big key. So your RSI values. So you want to look at RSI, you want to look at double leg and single leg, but then look at strategy of contact time and air time. So around those specific joint profiles, you can see weaknesses and, and areas of uh, low-hanging fruit that you can kind of attack with some of these athletes. And then finally, just kind of wrap it up so that these guys can jump in. But you got your general preparatory exercises. So at best, they have diminishing returns, right? So it's like we want to see if there's a red flag around your ability to move maximal loads, your ballistics, your Olympic lifts, and things like that. They're on the periphery that we want to monitor to see if there's like big key areas that have gone underdeveloped. But largely we're looking at the more like specialized transfer of exercises to be able to impact the performance. Cool. Love it, mate. Thank you very much. Anything to add there, Les, JB? Any non-field-based assessments that you <clears throat> use with the athletes, Les? I mean, like he just gave a, a dissertation. He did. <laughs> he did. Sorry. Sorry no, to follow that. no, I hop in. Um, well, first, I, I uh, literally just for, I forgot a company. I feel bad. Uh, Titan is a really good GPS provider. Um, I meant to I meant to mention that in the in the past part, but I've been looking into what they're doing. It's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, basically, like the way that we're looking at it, like we have six to eight weeks typically, whereas like uh, I know in team sports you have bigger windows. So what we're looking for is the highest degree of transfer. So like when we first started training and I started reading JB's research, I misinterpreted the research to think just do heavy sleds the whole time. And like what I was doing is I was literally doing heavy sleds and like I was watching, um, I was tracking the five and 10 yard splits and they were incredibly like, they were getting so much faster. They're improving a ton. Uh, the projection was great. Then they would get to the next segment, 10 to 20, and they would look terrible. Like they're running in mud. Um, they weren't able to get a fast enough contact time as as their velocities were increasing. What was happening is I was actually making the later segments slower. So like we talk about all the time, like surfing the curve. So being able to attack the whole curve and, and when and where <clears throat> and understanding what exercise is gonna get that adaptation that we need. And then how long do we need to apply that stimulus in that, in that zone? So when I have eight weeks with a guy, there's 
and, you know, guy A, he, he come in, like I had guys coming in running four, five, like four, eight, four, nine, and they're trying to run four fives. Uh, and then I also have linemen that are coming in running five, five, trying to run four, nine. So what we're looking at is like, how do we apply a stimulus in that bucket? And what are those exercises? What's the selection of drills that we're going to apply in that bucket? So for early acceleration, we, we picked like our, our four or five drills that we knew had a high transfer. And our goals were getting hip projection. Our goals were uh, being able to project the shoulders, being able to attack back and get a retraction step. So all of our drills looked like that, but they were also on the physical side applying uh, a, a more of a force stimulus. And then as we progressed, we looked at different segments of the run, like the 10 to 20 split, the 20 to 30 split. Our exercises started to look like straight leg bounding, or maybe it was like a, a triple jump. Like, or there was like different exercises that we knew would get a high degree of transfer, which also went along with lighter loads, medium loads that we had a target velocity for. Um, and then the goal was to get everybody to the point where the session looked like warm up and sprint. Like that was, that's the end. For me, like the last three sessions of the year, when we're prepping is like a self-guided warm-up and three or four sprints that are pretty fast. That's my goal, but it doesn't look like that the whole way. Like we're trying to chip away, chip away, chip away to get different adaptations, different portions in the run. Um, so like, like Ryan said, I don't want to overstate it, but output was a really easy way for us to track um, like RSI throughout the sessions and, and seeing it, like, are they becoming more reactive? And if they're not becoming re more reactive, we had to find a drill set that would, would get them more reactive. Um, also looking at thigh angular velocity. So number one, can they get the thigh range? This is Ken Clark's research mostly. So I, I don't want to mess it up, Ken, if you're listening, but number one, can they get the range that we're looking for? So if, if an athlete, like our lineman, a lot of them would have like 86 degrees of, of range. And we know that the elite sprinters have hundred to 102 uh, degrees of range. So obviously these guys are 320 pounds. So we need to move them in the right direction. You can't go broke making a profit. So getting four more degrees um, of separation between their thighs when they run, okay, that's going to that's gonna produce a, a better stride length, but also more potential to create a whip from that action. Uh, so it's not just how wide, how, how big can the thigh angle get? It's how fast can you accelerate that thigh to close? So it's, it's creating that switch pattern, uh, and which was a, a variable that we started tracking a ton. Um, and then from there, it was like how much of that is front side versus backside. So Originally growing up, we we're like, oh, you need 90 degrees in the front, um, no backside, but that, that's unrealistic. Like the best sprinters in the world have like 75 degrees front side and, and 20, 25 to 27 backside. Backside becomes really important for, for projection. So looking at variables like that, we're able to really look at the physical and technical um, adaptations we needed to make and then found drills that would actually get that adaptation without us. <clears throat> going in there and over coaching or manipulating or telling them, Hey, put your foot here or do this here, do this here. Like that's how I was coaching when I first started. Cause that, that's what I thought would sell. And uh, it did, but it was a pretty poor job. Like I, I didn't create fast people. And what I'm realizing now is like, how can I get an adaptation without talking? It's hard. It's really hard, but I need to put you in environments where I'm going to get that result. And that's, that's where the profiling, JB's research and, um, you know, Ryan, you know, Ryan's taking it to a whole new level, teaching me how to, how to put the physical and technical together, but not talking. Um, so that's been the overall goal. It's like if I can finish the session and I didn't say anything and I got the result, that's perfect. So.
Honest with you, lads. JB, and JB's been patiently waiting. Off you go, JB. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I just wanted to to have everybody notice that what, what Ryan and Les just did shows that research is isolating things to study one thing at a time better. And coaching is integrating things. So coaching has to integrate different research, different types of knowledge to coach people. And so um, for research shouldn't say you should do this or you should do that. Research should just say, we tested this. This is how it works. This is the effects. Now it's in your toolbox and, and you have to manage that. And this is very important. Absolutely. Thanks, JB. Come back to you again, JB. For, we've got a few more minutes. Any more questions, dive them, put them in the um, Q&A and the chat. Common misconceptions of force velocity profiling. The reason this came up was when I was prepping, when I was prepping for this and you put force velocity profiling, there's particular coaches that come up that talk about the the negative, I suppose the negative side of force velocity profiling and, and, and getting a little bit angry about it with lots of comments underneath. So over to you, JB. Yeah, so it's like every, anything else. You, you, you can find negative comments on everything. So it's uh, so first, one, one comment is that it's not useful. I guess the 45 minutes we've just discussed tends to show that it, it might be useful at some point if you don't expect something that it doesn't provide. The second, the second thing is that it's not um, uh, scientific scientifically valid and so on. Um, the thing is that if everybody in the world had 50 meter force plate systems, everybody would measure force and velocity of running people. There would be no debate. Okay, so and, and maybe the people who are bashing the concept today will publish with it in a few years. So that's that's just a, a social media circus part of things. The final thing, and I think this is on us, is that Yes, maybe we are using some terms that are not purely and biomechanically perfect, like the term power, the term force is ground reaction force is ground reaction force. But the term power is, uh, is uh, yes, misconcepted in, is in, in our approach. We are referring to the changes in kinetic energy of the center of mass of the runner related to the horizontal component of their push onto the ground. Okay, this is the, so we should refer to only the, the part of power output that comes from the muscles to the ground and that moves the center of mass forward. But we can, and this is, this would be more correct, but we can spend hours uh, talking about terminology or spend hours uh, uh, helping people improve speed of their athletes. And uh, that's, that's the part I've chosen. But now we are very careful because my job is to be a professor at the university. And, and we are very careful in, in clearly saying this is only one part of the human muscle power output. The part that is, uh, you know, driving your body forward. And I think this is a very important part. I did a funny video a couple of months ago to answer some, some critics like this. I was pushing the ground super hard and producing muscle power a lot. And I was not moving because I was pushing on place. And, and I said, here, I'm not producing any type of force, hence change of energy or power in the speed, you know, the moving, the running direction. So... Most of the misconceptions come from uh, people over-interpreting because not reading, I think, uh, you know, deeply enough our texts 
or our own words not being accurate enough. But if we are super accurate at some point, you know, we need to, to simplify down things. And I accept the fact that when you simplify, some people might interpret that as a mistake, yes. Over to you, Laz. Yeah, I'm not as nice as JB. Um, when, I see com <laughs> when I see comments, I, I look and see who have you coached. So like right, right now, to me, it, simply put like in a, in a nicer way, like um, what I found is like, I need, to, I need to find ways to justify the changes that I'm making. And if there's research and I can point to that research and say, here's the adaptation that researchers show me. Uh, it makes it really simple to follow along, then that's probably what I'm, what I'm going to do. I think a lot of criticism comes from people that aren't ever stress tested in a coaching situation where they're, they have uh, clients money on the line and they got to figure it out or that's the end of their career and their family doesn't eat. So that's the way I look at it. But uh, yeah, next question. <laughs> <laughs> Good work. Good work. Right. 10 minutes to go. We'll dive into these questions. Um, first one, I don't know if you, any, either of you guys know this. Is it possible to calculate a friction coefficient with exogeny? Uh, or is it only possible yes, to work uh, and decrease um, the unresisted running speed? I want to know the answer to this too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My experience is that by definition, there's no friction on the ground with exogeny. The friction is only in the, in the system itself. Mm -hmm. So I would tend to to do exactly the same. Uh, use that that uh, that um, uh, load device. You know, you use that to weigh uh, suitcases or meat in, the, and it's it's twenty dollars. And you can you can pull the exergeny at a constant speed, and you will read the amount of uh, of force. So you can you you don't assess the friction, but you assess the pulling force that the speed on the exergeny gives you. You know, it has different speeds, and so you can test the reliability of that and so on. But uh, it's not meant to be a device that provides uh, accurate measurements of friction. It's a device that gives you levels of friction, you know, um, categories of friction. While we're on the exogeny, recommendations for load velocity profiling with, with exogeny due to availability and convenience, if it's worth it. Thought about utilizing crane scale for accuracy. Yeah, yeah crane scale. That's the word I was looking for okay. from the beginning. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so maybe Les or Ryan, have you used the exergeny so far? Because I don't want to. Yeah, I actually used exergeny a lot, especially on the road with my bobsledders. Um, we just had, obviously, we just had the Olympics this year. So bobsledders would use exergeny. Uh, I haven't done any load velocity profiling on it. And to be honest, like we, we did so much resisted running uh, during the offseason and during the season that my bobsledders pretty much knew like what was a heavy load and what was around, like, around uh correct like i mean the session would just say i would write down just do a heavy load like five meters or 10 meters or whatever it was but i haven't I haven't done a load velocity profile but i'm going to now that i know how to do it with the exergen probably will so i'll test that out ryan are you going to dive in there no problem if not no i was just gonna say that <clears throat> no we haven't we haven't used the exergen i would just be sure that like the the load is like very very super precise around like the load velocity pro like, just because like I, I haven't used an extra genie personally but if there's like any like fluctuations in the amount of resistance that's in it it's gonna uh, it's gonna affect the load velocity profile so like that's why for us like we're very specific about we always use sleds or 1080 
And so like the, the service that we run on is indoors and it's exactly the same every single time. So like at least gives us peace of mind that we know that the loads are exactly the same. Yeah, I would just want to add that to avoid another misconception, when we talk about load velocity, we mean load slash maximum velocity you can reach with that load. To, to be to be clear, so if you want to do a load velocity with the with the with the exergeny, you need to have a, a let's say a, a speed well um, a load option on the exergeny slash maximum velocity. Cool, thanks, Jamie. Um, I'm going to come to Ryan for this next one. So from Pete, uh, when you work with linemen, do you prioritize heavier sleds more in the prep? as the zero to five, zero to 10 splits are more important for their sport demands, at least compared to skill position players. Yeah, absolutely. I think when you talk about profiling, like there, there's this conception of like, just because the data tells you to do something doesn't mean you have to do it, right? Like you're the coach. It's the whole idea of like balancing like artist and engineer. Like, you know, there's a specific general demand that athletes have or their strengths and weaknesses. If you're looking at their towel value, their acceleration or force dominant, but you always want to train to the position requirements. So it's like, if I know that they're that linemen play, play in a small box and have this positional demands around them, they're based largely in acceleration. That's going to be the majority of the stimulus I'm going to give them because what makes them great at their position inside of their sport is their ability to apply large forces, accelerate in small spaces and things like that. So I'm, I'm going to train to, to, to specific profiles, but I'm also going to keep taking into account position specific demands as well. Lars, anything to add? Yeah, <clears throat> this is my, my first year working with this many linemen, but I had 20 of them, uh, average weight, 315 pounds and and what i realized like yeah like we did we did do a lot of heavy stuff we started off pushing uh then we went to shoulder resisted and then waist resisted runs um but we actually there is a velocity component to them but what we notice is that the velocity component for them is they're reaching 90 95 of their velocity in 15 yards so we're touching on both sides of that that curve where we're working that you know the more loaded force side but we're also doing a lot a considerable amount of velocity and when you watch these guys play um we have two guys that are going to go pretty high and i was watching their film i mean these guys are running downfield and they're running 15 20 yards downfield and blocking and they're fast and the requirement for them is, is speed and even even the guys that um are playing on d-line and the edge especially have to be fast so we we typically start them heavy and loaded in force base, but we're also working the velocity side and we're trying to improve the contact times. Cause even in their, their positional uh, requirements, they have to have decent contact times. And we want to be able to touch on that. And I saw a question about um, transition. So I'll get to that mm -hmm. uh, on the next question, but we definitely do focus on velocity for those big guys and, and more so than I originally planned to, to be honest. Rather than me reading that out, did it go to everyone? Oh, no, I didn't. I'm going to, I'll, I'll read, shall I read it out, Les? And you can attack that question that yeah. came into us. Oh, for sure. So after profile, my athletes have noticed that a few that are deficient in their transition phase after the drive phase. Originally, I've been attacking the issue two to three times a week, right from the start by using variable load approximately five to 15 kilos on 1080, where 15 kilos would hit around 10 to 15 meters, where that transition phase is. 
would you attack this issue right from the start or would you surf, surf the slope hoping that it clears up over time? Also, is there a better way to attack transition phase other than what I'm doing now? Yeah, um, and I'm going to give an ambiguous answer, unfortunately, <laughs> because it's something I'm, I'm still trying to figure out. Um, because what, what I realized is like the beginning part of the training, you know, everyone's, everyone's doing force-based, higher loads, more power-based stuff, um, which you see immediate returns from, and it, it's easy. The transition is difficult. So finding like what stimulus to apply in that transition is, is really hard. Um, so what we found like transition um, loads were really good with 25% VDEP was really good for the second five of the 10. So you break the 10 into two fives, the second five. And the, and the, so it's like from the five to the 15 is really good. The 10% VDAC was really good from like 15 yards to like 30 yards. And then past there, it was really velocity. We were seeing the biggest changes. So our, our goal is to try to get to velocity, um, you know, through like you have to go through the ranks of, of force-based and power-based and, and gradually get to speed strength. But we want to get guys there. Um, within within the right amount of time to start to get those adaptations so we we realized like what helped the transition the most was getting to the opposite end of the spectrum which was velocity the faster ground contact times but we knew we couldn't get right there so it's really just a means to an end like for us it was about going through the 25 vdac and 10 percent vdac to get to velocity safely and get to velocity where it was effective where they're, they're powerful and they can handle that amount of velocity rather than saying like, I'm gonna get a massive adaptation from that, if that makes sense. So like we got the biggest adaptations in our transition when we finally got to that velocity phase, then we started to see that second 10 improve. So like one of the biggest KPIs we had for our big lineman was a second 10 split time. So guys were coming in like one, two, five, one, two, six, and they were leaving out. I mean, no lie, like one, one, four, one, one, five. Um, but that didn't happen until the last block of training guys were still in the one twos until the last block of training. And then we finally turned that velocity switch on and we started to see the adaptations from there. That's when the transition was improved. So in the middle, um, it's also good to understand that we're applying stress and that, that stress won't show up in that phase. Like that adaptation won't show up right there in that phase. Like you're not going to apply a stress on Monday and the next week come back and look at it and be like, Oh my God, they're, they're way improved. Sometimes it takes three to four weeks. And what we realized, even from the heavy sleds, it took us four weeks to come back from those heavy sleds to see massive adaptations in, even in that phase. So um, it's just a delayed training effect. And, and I know Ryan, Ryan is probably really good um, at talking about this, but um, just looking at the phase and potentiating the next phase, and that's where we started to see everything come together. So just looking at the whole picture from the top down, we can't expect it until the end if that's if we're going on this on this path. Dive in, Ryan. Can I come to JB to see us out? Yeah, I mean, I think the the accommodating resistance stuff and things like that obviously like have been huge for us on on multiple different levels um, and how we train our guys. But just like going back to the, <clears throat> touch on the lineman stuff real quick, like one of the biggest advantages of uh, of JB's work and the spreadsheets that he has is like his ability to essentially model velocity over time. So it's like one of those untapped areas that people just look at these five variables and they stop there. Well, it's almost like if you look at the slope and like linemen can accelerate well, but they have low top end speed, just raising up their top end speed ability will lift their acceleration profile up with it. So 
that's been a huge area of like being able to train these guys. And what Les kind of alluded to is like tapping into that neurological effect. And so like these guys need to be athletic guys, but there's always going to be a balance in our trade-offs there too. I think lastly, like we need to be careful about applying only applying physical stimuluses to technical issues. Cause like a lot of these guys don't know, like just don't understand like the smoothness of being able to like climb and rise their hips and like the rhythm and the cadence to being able to run these times. And so like there is only looking like physical interventions, I think can lead people down a path of being able to stall a little bit. And I think there's like, yes, like there's always physical issues. Like that's why we have these like profiles and these exercises around center around these like different issues to be able to address these physical issues that they have. But sometimes it's just teaching these guys how to be able to like transition and climb a little bit too. And being more like reactive around the ankle, like reactivity around the ankle is like big low hanging fruit for a lot of these athletes. Their ability to like handle and tolerate loads in these forces like their body, this whole self-organization argument is saying like, if I have a weak link in my foot and my ankle, I'm not going to be able to apply the technical intervention that you're wanting me to get. So like being able to attack these certain areas um, and isolate them and know how to test them is going to be huge. Love it, you guys. JB, last but not least. Um, no, I had something in mind, but uh, uh, it escaped. My yes, delayed effect. It's the most understudied uh, thing in, 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 in sports sciences. 99% of the studies give you a pre-post analysis and our own studies as well at the beginning. Pre is only one measurement, so you don't know the baseline and we should do two or three measurements to know the baseline from which the training effect will be measured, quantified. So we know the variability and is it really off the variability? And the second thing is that we measure things immediately post, and this is a mistake. And we've we've shown that in a in a very specific study. And now we do differently. Either we set a, a taper period before doing the post measurements, or we do repeated post measurements. And in terms of heavy resistances, I would even say that the first post measurement is almost useless. You need to wait at least one or two weeks, or you need to because there's also early peakers and late peakers in terms of adaptation, which is a mess, but we want to individualize the effects. And if you have a pro day or an NFL sprint on D-Day, you want to be the best here, not one week later, not two weeks later. And delayed effect is almost never studied. And this is, uh, this should be studied better, yes. Thanks for tuning in to episode 447 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Like I said, this episode was recorded this time last year with JB, Ryan and Les. And I really appreciate those guys coming together, finding time in the diaries to uh, to find a common, uh, common date and get this done. The information is absolutely fantastic in this episode. So I really hope you do enjoy it. Big thanks to Hawking Dynamics, Team Builder, Omega Wave, Santa College and Hydro for sponsoring this episode today. The podcast could not run its current form without these guys, so we do appreciate all their support. Big thanks to you for tuning in and I look forward to chatting to you next time.